0: For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we always make sure that we are in fellowship with him. Scripture teaches that salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. When we trust him for salvation, we are justified. Our sins are forgiven positionally. But as we live out our lives on a day-to-day basis, we still sin. And that sin mars that fellowship with God. It breaks that fellowship. It hinders the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit in our life. And Scripture says that we should confess our sins to him. And in that simple act of confession, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a realization in our day-to-day experience of the application of experiential uh, forgiveness. And it is under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that we learn God's word. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches us, he stores it in our soul, he recalls it to our memory, and he is the one who enables us to grow spiritually. We walk, Paul says in Galatians uh, 5.16, by means of the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to focus on the study of God's word. Uh, Following a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed to us in your word through the words of the psalmist that it is in your light that we see light that it is in the truth of your word that we are able to understand the truth of the creation, the realities of the creation, the principles that you have set into effect both physically and spiritually. That just as there are physical laws governing physical life, there are spiritual laws and spiritual absolutes that govern our spiritual life and our relationship with you. First and foremost is a recognition that we've all sinned. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the only solution to sin is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him and what he did on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Following that, we are to grow. We are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. It is through your word that you have decreed that you will produce spiritual growth in our lives. We are to grow by the grace and knowledge Of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now, Father, as we listen to your word, may we be reminded of the failure of the Israelites in the wilderness to hearken to your word, as the scripture says, to listen, to respond positively, and to obey. And may we not, as the scripture says, harden our hearts, harden ourselves, resist the teaching of your word as God the Holy Spirit applies it to our lives that we might uh, realize how serious it is to think and live according to the way that you have revealed in your word. So we pray that now as we study your word, that we would be able to concentrate, focus, and think clearly about the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study on Sunday morning through the book of Revelation, and we have come to the sixth seal judgment. In the book of Revelation, we have seen the first chapter focuses on the realities of what uh, the Apostle John saw in a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ while he was on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, He was imprisoned there by the Emperor uh, Domitian, and while he was there one morning on the Lord's Day, he had a vision of the risen, resurrected righteous Lord Jesus Christ. I use the word righteous because he is pictured and depicted there as the coming judge. In John chapter 5, uh, Jesus said that all judgment had been given to him by the Father and that he is the one who will execute divine justice in human history. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 focus on seven epistles, seven Corrective epistles, seven evaluation reports of seven distinct churches that existed in the western part of Turkey uh, in the Roman province of Asia Minor during the first century, and that is a depiction and warning to those churches of future evaluation and judgment from the Lord Jesus Christ and what the issues would be at that judgment. So the book of Revelation, as we see in those first three chapters, focuses on this theme of the judicial uh, pronouncements of God and how God will bring all to accountability at some future time. Beginning in Revelation chapter 4, the time shifts to the future. The time shifts to a future time that is not specified. It is a time that is related to a period of seven years depicted by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and sometimes referred to as Daniel's 70th week, which is simply a term used in that context for a seven-year period of time uh, that relates to the last seven years God had decreed for the nation Israel. And this seven-year period of time is known by other names, one of which is the tribulation period. It is a time of intensified physical judgment on the earth by God against mankind for their rejection of him. But God's judgment never comes apart from his grace. And we have seen this this depicted uh, many times in the last few weeks as I've gone through Revelation to show that there are... uh, hundreds of thousands, millions, perhaps even billions of people who will respond to the grace message of the gospel during the tribulation period. But there's a group of people during the tribulation period who are classified as earth dwellers, not because they live on the earth, but because their thinking is, de- is restricted to the finite thinking of man. They govern their thinking solely on the basis of reason and empiricism and their own uh, abilities to interpret reality apart from the external inputs of the creator God, and they are at the core of their thinking in rebellion against God. And the more they uh, see evidence of God's existence and of God's work and indeed of his judgment, the more they react, the more they resist, the more they shake their fist at God. And it is a picture, as we have seen in Revelation 6, at the end there when the sixth seal judgment, it is a picture of the hardening of man's heart, how on his own volition he hardens himself resisting God. So just to give you a a little overview of the context, historically there will be the rapture of the church that will end the present church age. This is followed by uh, this seven-year period known as the tribulation, which begins with uh, a series of judgments called the seal judgments. They are then followed by another series of seven judgments called the trumpet judgments, followed by a third series of judgments called the bowl judgments. So we've looked at the first uh, five judgments in Revelation chapter 6, and we are on the last one, which deals with uh, incredible geophysical and astronomical uh, disturbances, and the, there are uh, there, the results of earthquakes and volcanic activity the, the, uh, like there's never been seen in all of human history. And this is depicted as the wrath coming from the throne of God and the wrath of the Lamb, which is a depiction of the uh, harshness, the uh, intensity of divine judgment on mankind and the response from those who uh, resist it. The seventh judgment, seventh seal judgment will eventually be opened and reveal seven more judgments known as the trumpet judgments. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, we saw this first use of this phrase, those who dwell on the earth, and that this hour of testing, literally a time of testing, that that will come upon the whole world is designed to test those who dwell upon the earth. We saw that this is from a Greek word that indicates the idea of exposing the motives, exposing the real nature of something, having that idea of scrutinizing, examining, or proving uh, the real nature of something. And so the purpose of the, uh, the judgments during the tribulation period on the one hand is going to expose the real motives of the, the religious people, the do gooders, the moralists who have rejected God, the scientists, the politicians, the military leaders, all the way down to the everyday man on the street who, uh, wraps himself in a cloak of morality and ethics and religion, and yet at his, in his heart he has rejected god we 've come to the sixth seal judgment, and we have seen that in the text it describes these earthquakes that take place upon the earth as a result of that, which indicates that they are uh, there is an association of volcanic activity with the earthquake that throws enormous amounts of uh, material into the upper atmosphere causing the sun to be darkened. It's described as black as sackcloth. The moon will be turned red from the dust. The moon will look like blood. Stars fall to the earth, meteor shower, and then something will transpire that will make it appear as if the sky itself splits like a scroll. Mountains and islands will be moved out of their place, so there's a massive tectonic shift that takes place. And as a result of this, Though there will be many who will respond to the grace of God, those who are classified as earth dwellers will resist it. They are classified under seven categories. The kings of the earth, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, the slave, and the free man will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they will say to the mountains, fall upon us and hide us, from the presence of him who sits on the throne. There is overwhelming evidence. They now know for sure that the source of these judgments is God. They're not saying, well, we don't believe in God. He doesn't exist. We have to figure out some uh, legislative or scientific solution to all of these environmental disasters. They will finally realize that it is God who controls history and God who controls uh, all of these events and rather than submit to his authority, they would rather shake their fist at him and be buried alive in the mountains than face God and trust in him. And this is a picture of what the Old Testament depicts under the category of the hardening of the heart. And it can apply, as we've seen, to either unbelievers who are in complete resistance to God Or it can apply to believers that just because you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, just because an Old Testament individual was a believer in the promise of coming salvation and thus regenerate does not mean that they cannot rebel, that they cannot resist God and reject God because they would rather think in terms of the limited categories of creatureliness then think in terms of the expanded truth of divine viewpoint, which is revealed in the Word of God. Because to think in terms of divine viewpoint means that we have to submit our thinking and everything that we do in life to the authority of God. It's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of our spiritual life. Now, last time, just to give you a brief review, we looked at the classic example in the Old Testament of, of hardening. This was in uh, Exodus chapter 4, Exodus chapter 7, a couple of passages dealing with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I pointed out that the text simply says that God hardened his heart, but it doesn't tell us how he hardened it. And we learn that from some comparison with other passages. And the two key words that we find for hardening are the Hebrew words kazakh and kasha, which indicate the idea of strengthening or fortifying or making something hard or heavy. It is the idea of resisting God, strengthening the resolve to disobey God. Now, what preceded this with Pharaoh is summarized in a passage in Romans chapter 1 that gives us the pattern that occurs among most uh, of humanity, those who reject God. And here we have again a reference to that concept of divine wrath or judgment. And this is a judgment that occurs in history and has occurred throughout history. It's not a future judgment. For the wrath of God is, Paul says, continuing in present time, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by means of, literally, it's uh, instrumental there, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And the very fact that we have this word, the truth, indicates a specific truth. It is the truth that is revealed in God's word. There is a truth. There is one and only one truth. There are not multiple competing truths. There is one and only one truth, and that is the truth that exists and has existed for all of eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, in the mind of God as the creator who stands completely apart from the creation. He is the one who in his thinking has defined and designed and constructed all of physical reality, all of the universe. The laws of the universe work as a result of his design. And as the creator who stands outside of the creation, then he can change, manipulate those laws because they are his. That's how miracles occur. So he is the God, he is the creator God, but and he has placed within his creation the clear evidence that it has been established by a, a designer, an intelligent being, so much so that the text in verse 21 says that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. The point is that verses 19 and 20 pointed out that within the creation, the God's invisible attributes and his power have been made evident to them because God's existence has been made known within them, both externally and internally, Every human being has more than sufficient evidence of God's existence and God's reality, enough to hold them accountable. But the result is that they reject God. Professing to be wise, they amass Ph.D. upon Ph.D., laboratory experiment upon laboratory experiment to try to prove that God does not exist, to try to prove that a creator, a designer, cannot possibly exist And so the more they profess to be intelligent, they are classified biblically as fools because they're operating on an irrational basis of thought and they are trying to construct their own reality according to their own false assumptions. And the summary is that they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. Historically, we see this in the Ancient world as they developed pantheons of gods, especially in Egypt, who were uh, combinations of animals and man. And uh, this is what was worshipped in the Egyptian pantheon, and the Pharaoh was the incarnation of the god, one of the gods. And so Pharaoh has already rejected God, he has already hardened his own heart. And now, through secondary or intermediary means, God is going to use these plagues these ten plagues, and the result is that it intensifies pharaoh 's resistance against God from his own volition. but God is the one who is behind the these plagues Now the parallel with the sealed judgments is obvious, and when you compare the judgments in revelation to the ten uh, plagues in Egypt you see that there is a very tight correlation and just as pharaoh hardened his own thinking resisting god each time there was a judgment rather than responding to the grace that was there which is a call to repent if you if you continue to resist me it's only going to get worse but you have the opportunity to respond to the truth pharaoh continued to resist truth this is the same pattern that we'll see with the kings of the earth at the end of the age. And we saw Psalm two last time, which is a prediction of what will take place during that time. And Psalm two sets the part of the Old Testament uh, prophetic background for understanding the dynamics of the of the tribulation. So Romans one is that pattern, and I've gone over this and over this again to help us understand that this is the backdrop as to why God eventually brings this harsh intense judgment upon the human race in the tribulation period because it is the result of, of centuries and centuries of centuries of God reaching out to man uh, through prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, the Word of God, missionaries, pastors who have proclaimed the truth of God's Word, and yet there are uh, billions of people on the planet who stiffen their resistance to God and reject him. And there are consequences to that. But what modern man does, what ancient man did, is to anesthetize his thinking to the realities of divine accountability. And we think we live so much in the present that we forget about the future. And so this affects the destiny of unbelievers, but it also impacts the future of believers. And last time we looked at the first biblical example of hardening, and that was the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And this morning we're focusing on the second example of hardening, which relates to believers. And I want you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and this is a depiction of one of the uh, great key events in the Old Testament. We've often talked about the concept of framework when we discuss training and teaching from the scripture, and that idea, as you know, was developed by uh, Charlie Clough when he was uh, pastoring up at uh, up in Lubbock back in the 70s. And what Charlie observed, which was a tremendous observation, was that whenever you look at the Psalms, you look at the later prophets, you look at the uh, teaching of Jesus and the great discourses of the Sermon on the Mount, the Upper Room Discourse and the Olivet Discourse, you look at the long speeches that are given by men such as Stephen and Paul in the book of Acts, and you look at books like Hebrews and even revelation that all of these prophets and apostles consistently refer back to a set of key historical events that occurred in the Old Testament and they constantly go back to things like the creation or the fall or the noahic flood or the call of Abraham or the exodus event or the the rebellion in the wilderness or the conquest, and it is from those historical events that doctrines in the New Testament are developed and built. That's the core idea of framework thinking, realizing that, uh, and it's unique to Christianity, that the doctrines that we have revealed to us in the Scripture are not just abstract philosophical thoughts, but they have been revealed by the creator God of the universe, and thus the creator of history. They have been revealed in the context of history in real space-time events involving his true, genuine, historical individuals, places, and people, so that to question the veracity of God's word in relation to its historicity and the existence of these people and the uh, historical validity of the text is to question the doctrines associated with it. You can't come in, if you're logical, and uh, surgically separate the doctrine from the historical event. And so it is in the, in the Old Testament we see the origin of these doctrines within History within relationships, within people's lives. And the New Testament then goes back and develops these even further with application for the spiritual life of the church age believer. In Exodus, you have basically two concepts going on in Exodus. The first part has to do with the redemption of an enslaved people. The second part of Exodus has to do with the lifestyle, the living of a redeemed people. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt under uh the various pharaohs for over uh, two or three hundred years. They'd been in Egypt for over 400 years, but they had probably been enslaved for several generations. We don't know exactly how much of that period in, involved their enslavement, but it was probably more than three or four generations they, where they were enslaved, and there was no hope uh, for them other than the promise that God had given to Abraham back in Genesis that there would be a time when his descendants were out of the land for approximately 400 years and then God would bring them back to the land that God had promised to give to Abraham. And so the first part of Exodus describes how God redeems them and the final picture that we see in that judgment. So we see the idea of judgment in the plagues and redemption as well in the final plague where you have the Passover event where the angel of death is sent to take the life of the eldest son, the firstborn son, in every family. And the only uh, provision to escape that judgment, that death, was to apply the blood of a sacrificed lamb, a lamb that was without spot or blemish, picturing his perfection, his uh, innocence in a legal sense, his innocence, and that the blood, the applied blood of that lamb on the doorpost would cause the angel of death then to pass over, and so there would be no application of that judgment. It's a perfect picture of of the cross of Jesus Christ, which is why Paul says that it is Christ is our Passover. And John the Baptist said about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that the Old Testament pictures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who as uh, our Passover lamb was slain on our behalf, and it is the application of his, the principles of his death, believing in him as our Savior, that the death, the eternal death, the condemnation that God has decreed for all those who reject him uh, is, is taken from us, and we have eternal life. So these events depict the redemption of the people then they pass through the uh pass through the red sea which is a picture of their identification with Moses according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 it's their baptism with Moses baptism being meaning identification and is a foreshadowing and picture of the baptism of the holy spirit that the believer church age believer experiences because of our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So these people coming out of Egypt have seen incredible proofs, incredible evidence, convincing proofs, using the terminology of Luke in Acts chapter 1. They have seen these convincing proofs of God's existence, of God's grace, of God's uh, deliverance of them, uh, time after time after time. And they sing this great hymn of praise in Exodus uh, chapter 15, uh, called the Song of Moses in the first 21 verses. And then as they leave that place, they go on, and as they go into the wilderness, there is a lack of water. Now, you've got about two to three million people who Moses is taking through the wilderness. It takes a tremendous amount of water to sustain that large of a group of people. So we're not talking about simply finding small springs along the way. They needed something that was a lot more, uh, a lot more involved than that. And so they began to grumble. They get thirsty and rather than turning to God in trust, they uh, grumble against God, and again and again and again, the people complain against Him. We see this in Exodus 15:24, Exodus 16:2, 7, and 8, Exodus 17:3, Numbers 14:2, Numbers 14:27. 4, again and again and again, the response of the Israelites, who are considered believers for the most part, is to Ignore the empirical evidence of God's grace and God's love and to complain that he's not giving us enough. And that is so true of many believers, many of us, that rather than putting our focus on all that God has given us, we constantly put our hope in having details of life that we don't have, thinking that that's the source of happiness. Exodus chapter uh, the last half of chapter 15, God provides water for them at a place called Merah. They come to this place. Merah means bitterness. It is a root word that is related both to the name uh, Merah, which you used in scripture, as well as Mary and Miriam. And Exodus in Exodus 15:22 to 27, he tells tells Moses, just take take this tree and put it in the water. And when he does, the the bitter waters. Uh, there at the springs are sweetened and made potable and water is provided for the Israelites. So you would think they would learn once again that God is able to sustain us in any situation. There's no set of circumstances, no problem, no difficulty in life that's too great for the grace of God. But the problem is we want it done our way. That's hardening our heart. That's negative volition. We want God to dance to our tune. We don't want to submit our will to his will. And so in Exodus chapter 16, they come to a set of springs at a place called Elim, and again, God provides water for them for their springs there of water, twelve springs. And then, but they find something else to complain about. Doesn't remind me of anybody here, but it may remind you of somebody. And they begin to cl- complain about the fact that there just isn't enough food. And so God provides food for them, and He will provide food for them in the form of manna, which means what it is. And when they saw it, they didn't know what it was, but God provided food for them in a special form, and because they got bored with it day after day after day, they began to complain about that. And then in Exodus chapter 17, we have another water problem. So that's our context. And we read in Exodus seventeen one all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. That's not sin. That is simply the uh, wilderness area, desert area in the Sinai, uh, and that's the root of Sinai, S-I-N, etymologically, the wilderness of sin So this is somewhere between uh, the present gulf uh, of Suez, the Suez Canal, and somewhere in the central part of the sin- Sinai Peninsula. Uh, most biblical scholars of a conservative orientation do not believe that the traditional site of Sinai in the southernmost tip of that peninsula is the, uh, it's called Jebel Musa, but most do not believe that is the actual site. It doesn't fit the biblical data. So you can't travel from, you can't get there fast enough and you can't get from there to Kadesh Barnea in the southern part of Israel fast enough. So that's discounted. We're not exactly sure where uh, Sinai was located but they're on their way to Sinai and so they are traveling uh, stages day by day according to the commandment of the Lord and they camped at a place called Rephidim but there was no water for the people to drink so once again rather than trusting God rather than identifying the problem and turning to him in prayer and request, we, requesting sustenance it is a test that reveals the real nature of their character. And they grumble and they complain and they moan and groan against God that he doesn't care for them. And they go to Moses, they quarrel with Moses and say, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And the word here for quarrel is a Hebrew word, uh, reeb, that is used in a technical sense for bringing a lawsuit against somebody but it is used in a generic sense to refer to those who just quarrel and complain and get involved in bitter verbal disputes. So Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You know, How can God be so cruel to our children? How can God be so cruel to the animals? Uh, maybe we need to form a, uh, uh, some kind of a, a group to protect the animals from God. And he, he hates our children to bring us up here. So they're operating completely outside of any kind of divine viewpoint framework about about life. They want to define it on their terms. They want God to provide for them the way they think they ought to be provided for. And this is typical of the thinking of the earth dweller. They restrict their thinking, their interpretation of reality to that which is finite and that which is uh, creation-oriented. So Moses cries to the Lord because God is gracious to us. We all fall into that trap at different times. And Moses is the one who has a divine viewpoint orientation. He goes to the Lord in prayer and says, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. No, I want you to note that God doesn't rebuke the people here. That is the That is the long suffering of God, the scripture says. That is his grace in action. So many times he could just uh, squash them, but he continues to deal with them in grace and in supplying their needs. He says, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. This would be a very large rock. Don't think of it in terms of something small. This would be just an enormous rock face of the cliff because this is going to supply not just a small stream of water but a large gush of water like a river that is going to have to provide enough uh, water to sustain uh, two to three million people. So it's uh, hundreds of thousands of gallons are going to pour out of this rock. So it's a huge rock. And he says, stand before the rock and strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Massa is from the Hebrew word Nassah, meaning testing. It is a participial form, used as a noun, a uh, place of testing, Meribah, And from that root Reeve. Do you see the R I B in the middle of that word? and the M at the beginning makes it a participle or a noun form, a substantive form, and so it's called the place of testing or the place of quarreling because the people quarreled with Moses and tested God. Now, that's the end of, of, of the event. He called the name of the place Mass of Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, they wanted God to prove himself to them, on their terms but had he not done that again and again and again see man does not want to submit to god that's the real issue the issue isn't a question of evidence the issue isn't a question of historical veracity the issue is human volition and it is a spiritual issue and man sets his heart against god resists god and this can happen to both unbelievers as well as believers. Now, this event is picked up by the psalmist in Psalm 95. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 95, which we read earlier. Psalm 95. This is a psalm of worship as well as a psalm of warning. The first uh, seven verses here focus on uh, God. Uh, praise to God. Let us sing to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. I like the way the psalmist introduces that idea that he is the rock of our salvation. The rock that uh, Moses strikes in the wilderness is a type of Christ who is the rock. Christ is the one who is unshakable, he is, uh, he is strong, he is mighty, and yet he was struck down in, his, in the first advent by those who opposed him and crucified on the cross, and there he paid the penalty for us. But the psalmist says, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For Yahweh is a great God and a great king above all the gods. So it's a call to recognition of his his authority. And his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. Again, we see the fact that it is God who controls the environment. It is God who controls uh, the geophysical realities of the planet. Uh, he is the one who made everything. He is the one who sustains everything. And therefore, we should. our response is to come and worship him and to kneel down before him a picture of our submission of our will to his will. And this is what we are to do. The psalmist says, notice at the end of verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, don't wait till tomorrow. Don't say, well, I'll get my spiritual life squared away when I'm a little older. It is a challenge to start making it the reality today. And the warning is then given in verse 8. In verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. So here we have the same word used to describe the hardening back in Uh, Exodus, remember I pointed out there are two different words used for hardening in Exodus, for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and these same words are used in reference to what is going on with the Israelites in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, Though they had seen my work, see, empirical evidence isn't the issue. The issue is, what is your volitional response to God? It's your responsibility, and are you one who responds to God's word in submission, or are you one who responds in antagonism and resistance? And then God goes on to specify that for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. And see the word heart here, here's another example of how it is used in reference to both thought and volition. They've constructed their own view of reality that is divorced from reality. It's a fantasy because they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness like many believers do as well as Unbelievers, and because they have not known my ways, they have rejected doctrine, they have rejected the teaching of God's word, so they have suppressed the truth, being the revelation that God has given them at that time, so that they do not know God, and all they are wanting to follow is a construct of their own emotion, their own imagination. The result is that God makes a judicial decision, and that is, he's expressed in verse 11, Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That generation would be prohibited from entering into the promised land. They would all die in the wilderness. Day after day after day, there would be thousands of funerals as a commemoration to the rebellion that occurred at Kadesh Barnea because the people rejected God's grace and God's power and God's provision. But this just is not restricted to an Old Testament event. I want you to turn with me into the New Testament, toward the end of the New Testament, to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Now, in Psalm 95, in verse 8, the word there, do not harden, is the word Kesha which was also used in Exodus. It's translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, made by the rabbis about 200 years before Christ, with the verb skle, sklereno, or scleruno, actually, which means in the Greek to be hard, to become hard or stubborn, to be fixed, and negative volition toward God, to be stiff-necked or obstinate. And this word is used in Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews addressing believers, now these are Jewish believers who have come out of uh, Judaism, come out of the priesthood at that time, and now they are thinking about going back. They are thinking about rejecting what they have learned of God's word. And so the writer of Hebrews warns them and says, "'Take care, brethren,' that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Any believer can do this. This is not a loss of salvation. This is a departure from the truth operating on the arrogance of your own sin nature. But instead, contrast in verse 13, rather than falling away in rebellion... We are to encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is simply a recognition of the fact that believers are to encourage one another when we see our friends or family members uh, who are uh, threatened, threatened to fall away, that we are to encourage them not to, but to remain and to be strong. That we are, and it gives us the mechanics of hardening that we're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When we get in, out of fellowship or when the believer who can only operate on the sin nature is operating on the sin nature, then that generates a false view of reality, which is deceptive. One of the first uh, arrogant, primary arrogant skills is self-deception self-deception, and so we generate our own view of reality. Now, in the book of Hebrews, on three different occasions, in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse verbatim. He is making a very strong point to the... uh, to his readers, and that is that we, as church-age believers, have an even greater revelation of God's Word. We have the revelation of God's Word in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a revelation of God's Word in the completed canon of Scripture. And so the warning to us is to not harden our hearts in resistance to the truth of God's Word. Now, this is quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter, uh, alluded to again, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 and following. It's quoted again in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. These are all uh, quotations from Psalm 95. So again and again, there's this emphasis for the believer, do not harden your heart. You can do this. There's not any of us in this room, myself included, that cannot get into a place of arrogance in our spiritual life, a time when we put our focus on the finite details of life and get distracted from the real issues of our spiritual life living in light of our future destiny. Scripture makes it clear that the church-age believer is unique among all believers in history. The church has a significant role, not only today, but in the future, because we are called the bride of Christ, and the book of Revelation constantly reinforces the truth that we are living today in light of a future reality of ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our training time now. And if we don't learn to align our thinking to the truth of God's word, and if we don't learn to be responsive to his authority in our lives, submitting our will to his will, then there are consequences. For the believer, they are not consequences of eternal judgment, but they are consequences of loss of reward and loss of inheritance in the same way that those Jews, in terms of history in that first generation, that exodus generation, lost their inheritance and were not allowed to enter into the rest of the promised land. So there are consequences. This is a strong warning to every individual to take their spiritual life very seriously to make sure that we do not succumb to this same form of arrogance. Now, we'll look one more time next week at one more example from the New Testament of the hardening of the heart, and this will relate to that doctrine referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But that's next time. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that we can be here today to be refreshed by your word, reminded of your infinite grace and your love and provision for us, and to be uh, challenged by the importance of keeping our focus, our thinking upon your word, submitting to your word, and not hardening ourselves in resistance to the infallible, inerrant message of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Every one of us was born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under condemnation. But God in his love sent his son to die on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sin so that by simply trusting in his work, trusting in his payment, trusting in his provision, we can have eternal life and eternal salvation. When you put your faith in Christ, at that instant you are given, imputed the righteousness of Christ, you're declared justified, you are forgiven, you are given eternal life, born again, and many, many other things that characterize uh, your new life in Christ. And this can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us, believer and unbeliever alike, with the truth of your word, the need to orient our thinking to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with me for our closing hymn. Our closing hymn is...